Good morning again. Uh, just one more time, my name is Josue Pernillo. I'm the pastoral intern here, and we're really glad that you could join us this morning. If you are a visitor, we would love for you to fill out a Connect card. Uh, and thank you for being here on New Year's Day. I know that a lot of us stayed up late yesterday, not me in particular. Uh, even though I'm in my 30s, I act like I'm 50 on New Year's Day. <laughs> I just go to sleep as soon as I can. Um, but the passage for this morning's sermon, which is called Rejoicing in Hope, is from Philippians 1, verses 18 through 20. That's Philippians 1, verses 18 through 20. Um, and I'll read. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you that we could gather this morning, not only to welcome a new year, but to rejoice in the hope that you give us, to give glory to you, the one who saves us, who brings us out of the dominion of sin and death. By your grace, Lord, we are here. Help us as we look into your words, open our hearts and open our minds. Help us see in our lives the things that you are working on. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this morning. Help me, Lord, as I preach. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, uh, because it is the first day of the year, and it's the first Sunday of the new year, it is required for me in my opening illustration to talk about New Year's resolutions. I think if I don't, somebody will bring me up on charges just because the occasion is appropriate. But New Year's resolutions is something that we all have. I usually, one of the new ones in churches, I'm gonna read the whole Bible this year. And from personal experience, I usually only get to numbers sometimes. And then after numbers, it gets a lot harder. And if you can't get to Leviticus, that's great. But New Year's resolutions are a way for us to look forward to the new year and hope and reflect over what has happened in the previous year to see what we need or where we want to go. Um, new Year's resolutions can be a happy and exciting thing, or it can be a sad and dreadful thing. We can avoid resolutions because we feel that we have failed and we were not going to change and there, nothing's going to be different. Or we can be excited if it's been a successful year and everything is going well, and we start making too many resolutions. But in the end, it's a way that we reflect over the past and consider the future. So whether we are looking back in our year or looking forward in our year, what gives us confidence in this time, in this first day of the new year? It's been a while since we've been in Philippians. I think it's been like six months, actually. So I'll do a quick recap. In the previous two verses, or two sermons, we saw in the beginning how Paul is writing to his friends. He has a desire for them to grow, to love God, to know him, even though he himself is in prison and they themselves are under persecution. Not only that, there is people within the church of Philippi, which is a previous sermon, that are preaching in order to spite Paul. 
we saw that they are both him and the church are going through internal tensions and external pressures. And in the midst of this, he says that he can rejoice. And in today's passage, he goes deeper. He begins by saying, yes, and I will rejoice. Paul is writing not only as a person who's facing difficulties, but to a church who's struggling. And in the midst of those struggles, the church at Philippi has sent Paul a monetary gift. And that monetary gift prompted the letter. So the seasoned apostle responds. And he talks about throughout the letter of Philippians about Christ, about hope, about rejoicing, about friendship, and about joy. So now, this week, we look at how Paul responds to them. And he explains the confidence that he has in his future joy. The passage begins with, yes, and I will rejoice. It's in the future. He, as a caring pastor and apostle, seeing his friends struggling with the same struggle that he himself had, explains to them the coming joy that we share and the rooted hope that he has that he will be delivered. And he explains this through three points, which are three points this morning. That's another thing that's required. I gotta talk about New Year's resolutions and the sermon has to have three points, but three points. God's means of deliverance, deliverance in shame, and deliverance in glory. So first, God's means of deliverance, verses 18 through 19. I want to read it again. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. We begin by discussing what is the means of deliverance. In the next two points, we'll discuss what that deliverance means. But here, we're discussing the means. And the means here, as Paul describes them, are twofold. He says, by the prayers of the people and by the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. What we see from this passage and from the testimony of scripture is that God works through means. He says he's assured, he's confident, it says, and he says this will turn out, like he will rejoice, he says this will turn out for my deliverance. And so let's talk about those means. First, prayer. It's always amazing for me to see as I look to Paul's, especially Paul's letters, how much and how often he asks for prayer. He asks for prayer from the churches and from Timothy and from Titus. He does it in Romans 15, 30, verses 30 through 32. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verses 10 through 11. Ephesians 6, verses 18 through 20. Colossians 4, verses 2 through 4. And there's more. Paul is constantly asking for prayer. He's asking for prayer for his ministry. He's asking for prayer for provision. He's asking for prayers to be delivered. Paul, as a seasoned apostle, who had seen the vision of Christ on the road to Damascus, who was sent out from Antioch, took prayer seriously. It is not only evident in the fact that he asked for prayers, but even in the prayers that he himself wrote for others. In today's passage, he assumes it from his friends. He doesn't even ask for it. He knows that they're praying for him. He says, through your prayers and by the Spirit. 
he finds himself in a particular, particularly, sorry, hard, that's a hard word, particularly difficult situation. He is both in prison and derided. He is in chains, and the churches that he helped establish are gossiping behind his back. And so he sends a letter to his friends for a physical help, and he assumes that they're praying for him. It is not just obedience for the sake of obedience, as Paul describes it here, prayer, because you should pray, but because that's the means through which God works. That's what he has ordained. It is now no way for us to think that whatever we pray for, or whatever Paul's praying for, he will immediately receive. But it does show us the weight that he puts in the prayers of the people. And the second means is also related to that, because the second means is by the spirit of Jesus Christ. Um, and <laughs> if you've heard a couple of my sermons now, I really get into the grammar for some reason. English is my second language. And so then because I learned it as a second language, like the grammar is always interesting to me, mostly because it's confusing. But <laughs> so what does it mean when it says the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ? Is it the help, like, is the Spirit himself providing the help? Or is the help that the Spirit is there? Which one is it? So by their prayers, because the way that it's organized, the people pray, God provides the Spirit. So is it that the Spirit is with Paul or that the Spirit provides the things which Paul needs? And after careful look at the grammar and what it means, I think it can mean both, and commentators genuinely argue. But that's why grammar is important. Um, because we need both, right? Paul, I think, is emphasizing the very real and present help and intervention of God in his situation as it relates to the prayer of the people by the provision of both the Spirit himself and the things which the Spirit brings. He shows how God is working in his life even though he's in prison and by the use of the means, because he had a great need. He, not because he was a seasoned apostle or because he wrote the majority of the New Testament, did not think that he was above prayer requests. And so he asks them and assumes that they will pray for him and that God will provide his spirit. Um, you know, in most churches that I've been to, and even in youth group and when you're a kid, there's this thing that, like, Christians do, right? Like, you always ask for prayer requests. Like, when you're getting coffee with someone, you're like, oh, what can I be praying for you for? And I don't know if it's just me, but whenever, <laughs> and it, maybe it's just me, and if it is, just, like, just, you know, just laugh or something, I don't know. But like when people ask me for prayer requests sometimes, it's like awkward, right? Like I need a second and then I'm like, oh, okay, wait, what is my prayer request? You know what I mean? Or like when you're talking to somebody and all of a sudden they're like, well, what can I be praying for you for? And then you either have a list of what you need to say, right? It's like, oh yeah, pray for my job and this is going on here and I need you to do this. And so then the next time somebody asks you, you just say like, oh, okay, yeah, can you just pray for this or that or that? But why is it awkward sometimes? Like, why is it that when we ask each other for prayer requests, like, there is that sort of, like, half a second or a minute, 
and like a question in your heart where you're like, oh, well, what's an appropriate prayer request to share? And there's some wisdom in sharing, right? Because um, it's either that we feel that if we're honest, or if I'm honest, um, that the person won't really pray, or they're just asking because that's what Christians are required to ask, or that they'll judge us for what we really need. They'll judge us for those things that weigh down our hearts and the needs that make us cry and stay up at night. That if we really shared who we are in our hearts and what we really need God's provision for, that others wouldn't understand. But the truth is, God works through means. And he has ordained for us to pray. And not only that, God hears our prayers. It is awkward sometimes. But I think what we see from this passage is that it is important for us to not only know each other's lives, to know, because there are, you know, even in my personality, it's like there's times I'm not gonna tell you, you know what I mean? Luke knows me enough, he like asks me something, I give like a roundabout answer, it's like, yeah, you know. And it's like, but different people are different, right? But we need to know each other. That's what this passage encourages us to do. Know each other in our needs. Know how we can pray for each other. What we are praying for. And also have confidence before God that we are heard because of Jesus. As we engage with each other, even during the potluck, we can understand each other in a better way and pray for each other. What are your needs this morning? It's the beginning of a new year. Maybe 2022 wasn't what you hoped it would be, and 2023 is not looking better. What are those things that have filled your heart with worry and concern? Let us, this morning, as we share with each other, and in our time of prayer, even during the Lord's Supper, share our worry and concern with God, the one who hears. Let us make our requests known to God. God hears our prayers. God works through means. And let us pray for one another. So Paul here talks about the means of deliverance by the prayers of the people and the provision of the Spirit. But what is he being delivered from and what is he being delivered to? And that's what our next two points deal with. So point number two, deliverance and shame, verses 19 through 20. So I'll read it again. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is, my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So we can now come to the question that I'm sure has been itching at the back of your head. I don't know if it has. But what do you mean by deliverance, right? What is deliverance here? How is Paul using deliverance? Does he mean, and there is some justification from the words used, that he will be delivered from his present imprisonment and continue to preach the gospel? That is a possibility from the verse. It could mean that he's saying that through their prayers and through the provision of the Holy Spirit, Paul will be, he's confident that he will be released from prison or whatever physical circumstance he's undergoing will be overcome. The word here for deliverance is the same as when Paul was on a boat in the book of Acts 
and he tells the people, stay on the boat and you will be delivered. So same sort of physical and present deliverance. He could mean that. But then why does he talk about shame? And why does, at the end of verse 20, does he say, whether by life or by death? Because I think what Paul here is mentioning about deliverance is something more ultimate. He is confidently asserting that whatever is going to happen in his future, he is secure and confident in, right? He's saying that whatever's coming, I know what the outcome will be. And he relates that to the negative aspect of shame. In any sense of the word, Paul should be ashamed, right? He is in prison. The people that he reached out to are mocking him. In the book of 2 Timothy, he says, all have left me. He has no stable relationships anymore. He is persecuted by an empire, and he's left completely alone. But here, when he writes to the Philippians, he says, I will not be ashamed. Even if his public reputation is being called into question, He spent the previous verses explaining that although he was in prison, the gospel was not in prison. And even though some are preaching just despite him, he can rejoice. The shame that Paul talks about here is not just about reputation. This idea is sort of supported in the Psalms. If you go to Psalms 25, verses 2 through 3, I'll read it. You don't have to go, but if you want to write it down, it says, Psalms 25, verses 2 through 3, Oh my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait on for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. And in Psalm 71, verses 1 through 2, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me, incline your ear to me and save me. Paul relates the idea of shame and in the Psalms to trust. He's saying that those who put their hope in God will not be put to shame. That's why he can be confident in the outcome. He says that those who put their hope in God or trust him, not only will not be ashamed, but they will be rescued. So he comforts his friends, although he himself is in prison, although his reputation is being uh, dragged through the mud, he is not deterred or discouraged. He will be rescued because he has not been forsaken by God. He is confident in the result of the situation. That word for shame is used again in 1 John 2, Verse 28, it reads, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Deliverance here, in a sense, does talk about the present circumstances, but it also talks about the circumstances to come. Paul lives before the eyes of God, that's why he will not be ashamed. Paul is confident that if he hopes in God, he will not be forsaken. 
that even if this specific situation does not work out, that he will be vindicated. That although he may be humiliated for a season, he will not be ashamed. He will be delivered from shame and his life work of preaching the gospel will be shown to be worthwhile because Paul lives before the eyes of God. He will not be shown to be a fool. Romans 5 talks about this, which we read this morning. And hope, it says, does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So Paul can sit in prison, be mocked and ridiculed, be rejected by his friends, and with confidence say, I will not be ashamed because his eyes are fixed on God. Shame, I think, is something that in general we understand instinctively uh, depending on who you are ashamed before, right? Like um, when you're a kid and you do something wrong and you're with your friends, you say, oh, just don't tell my mom, right? Like it's not that everybody knows or when you go to school, you know, things like that happen. Shame makes us hide. In the garden, when Adam heard the voice of God, he said, I heard your voice and I knew that I was naked and I hid. But even in Philippians, we see the same story of shame and humiliation. But we see it in the life of Christ. In Philippians 2, which we'll get to someday, hopefully, <laughs> um, Jesus took the form of a servant. In Hebrews, it talks about how Jesus scorned the shame of the cross because it was not his shame, but it was ours that he carried. And not only that, in Philippians 2, we see how Jesus was vindicated by God. Although that he was mocked in the cross, uh, if you remember, the Pharisees cried out to him. He could heal others, but he could not heal himself. He was vindicated by God on the third day. It is not just that Jesus is our moral example, is what I'm saying, but that he calls us to follow in his footsteps. What is it that we are scared for in the future? What is it that brings us shame? Is it the choices that we make? Is it that we are afraid that others will view our life and our choices or our clothes? I spent a lot of time this morning trying to pick up my clothes. <laughs> so it's personal. As foolish. Are we afraid of what we think about ourselves? What we achieve? We can be afraid and ashamed or scared that our life will produce foolish results of little fruit and people will look at us and judge us. Are we afraid of our flaws? Shame in itself uh, can freeze us from talking to others or trying different things or even standing still. 
Sometimes when I'm really ashamed, I start cleaning. I don't know why. It's like a really bad habit. Well, it's okay habit because I clean at least, but uh, trying to clean the outside so the inside feels better. Uh, once I had made a mistake years ago and I had to go to church that Sunday, but I was so ashamed. I, I, it was in here, it was a long time ago, but I stood on the mezzanine, felt like I couldn't even come into the sanctuary because that's what shame does. Or does shame make you react with vitriol towards people's expectations? You know, it's like, if you're not going to like me, then you're going to hate me. <laughs> you know, like, then you live with no shame. In Guatemala, somebody, that's an insult. If you say somebody is like, oh, sinvergüenza, he has no shame, right? Like that person does not care about anybody. That's what that means. Um, but in either case, whether you hide from others or in anger confront others, you still live for their your approval. But those who trust in the Lord will never be put to shame. The shame we should fear is not that our reputation before others or even before ourselves we do not live for visible results or immediate results to be praised by others, but we live before the eyes of God. And those who put their trust in him will not be ashamed. Even if we have flaws or our lives don't produce the results and the impact that we long and desire, we can have a deep confidence and trust Maybe you are sitting here this morning and you feel ashamed for various reasons. As we compare with others or even as we consider certain aspects of our own life. But Christ bore our shame on the cross. We can come even today, even if you stand at the mezzanine. We serve a God to whom we can cry for mercy. A God who does not turn away a broken spirit or a contrite heart. And although there may be moments in this life where we can feel ashamed, those who put their trust in God will not be ashamed. Even if we don't get the promotion that we want, even if we have difficulties in our families, even if our friendships don't develop how we desire, even if we don't have positions or titles of honor and respect, we will not be ashamed because our hope is in Christ. And that's what Paul's talking about. It's not just what's happening on the outside because he hopes in Christ because our treasures are hidden in him, we will not be ashamed. So Paul talked about the means of deliverance. He talked about what we are delivered from, but he also talks about what we are being delivered to, and that's deliverance and glory. Verse 20, and I'll read it again. 
It's only three verses, so I can read them a lot. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So now we talk about deliverance from the perspective of glory. And as we talked about, it's not just a deliverance from something, but it is to something. He says now, Paul writes, with full courage, now as always, Christ will be glorified in my body. Because there is a depth to the deliverance that Paul is describing. And that also is what leads me to interpret this at least, not only as a physical deliverance from prison, but as something more ultimate. When Paul is talking about his body, he is talking about his physical life here on earth. And with confidence, he's declaring that whether he lives or he dies, now as always, Christ will be glorified. His main concern, as we talked about, as a person who's living before the eyes of God, is the glory of God. Even in the previous verses, when other people preached against him, he said, my main concern is that Christ is preached. So Paul, about to face a Roman tribunal with full courage that Christ will be glorified in his body. That God is going to use his circumstance to glorify Christ. When the term here, it says, with full courage, it usually means before others with repute. You know, like when you go ask your boss for something, or when you're a kid and you go ask your parents to buy you something, like usually you come kind of like meek, and you're like, hey, it would be nice if on Tuesday I could go with my friends. But what he's saying here is with full courage, with confidence, with his head held high, he faces those in high regard. He faces those who are about to judge him in the body. He's explaining that not only that he will not be ashamed, but rather in the positive, this difficult situation will turn out for the glory of God. Paul isn't concerned with his own glory or reputation or power or influence, but his concern is with the glory of Christ. Even as he faces what could possibly be his final tribunal, he has confidence. He will not be ashamed and Christ will be glorified. So with full courage, he's able to face the future, both with confidence and with eager expectation. His life reflects the glory of Christ. And with that, the whole picture of the three points comes into question. Because the question of this verse, of these verses is, how can Paul rejoice in hope in the midst of difficulty? He can rejoice in hope in the midst of difficulty because he's confident that whether he lives or dies, Christ will be glorified. And not only that, he will not be ashamed by this. And how does he know that he will be delivered and this will come through? Because God provides through the prayers of his people and by his spirit. God is working. The substance of his deliverance is that Christ will be glorified and he will not be ashamed. He is both taken from shame and given over to the glory of Christ. So Paul can rejoice. He is confident that he will rejoice. He begins this whole set of verses by saying, yes, and I will rejoice. And that is why he stands on solid ground. And therefore, 
he commits himself to joy. Not because the road is easy, not because he is devoid of difficulties, but because he's never alone. And everything that he's going through is not meaningless. Christ will be glorified. All of his efforts will produce fruit in God's good time and by God's good grace. That was, um, I used to play the piano like back in the college ministry. And um, if, if you've heard me talk about the piano, I think that I'm a terrible piano player, okay? But this particular situation, I was playing the piano one time and I think I got all the chords wrong, you know? And like, it was one of those things where like, you get one or two chords wrong in the beginning, you can correct. But it was like a three minute song and like every single chord had something wrong in it. And do you know how I know it was bad? Because somebody after the service walked up to me and they said, oh, thank you for serving. That's how you know, right? That's how you know when they're saying like, oh, you have a really good heart. That's how you know they're telling you you have a good heart because your piano playing isn't up to par, right? I was like, oh, it's better not to have said anything, right? <laughs> like, oh, just leave me alone. Um, but it's funny because I always thought like, man, what a waste. I just went up there and embarrassed myself. Um, what was the point? Like, what a weak effort. Uh, I didn't play piano for months after that, actually. It was, I was really embarrassed. Um, and I'm studying for my exams. And I have to read the Westminster, I get to read the Westminster Confession of Faith. Luke was looking at me, so I have to say that. But there is something that it says about our labors before God. And this is what it says. Notwithstanding, the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works are also accepted in him not as though they were in this life holy, unblameable, and unapprovable in God's sight, but that he, looking upon them in his Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. You know, when, the, especially in the closing point, it's, oh, we have to live for the glory of Christ. That's pretty much the thrust of it, right? Um, I think the natural question is like, I know, you know, like our, the response is like, but how, right? Um, and I think the application here is just to say that let us not grow weary in doing good. That even if it's playing the piano terribly, which I have personal experience from, God looks at our works in Christ even if they're weak and full of imperfections. God uses them, and God uses us, weak and sinful people, full of flaws and impatience, to glorify himself. And he's changing us also. It's not just, as David prayed earlier, as we serve in church, but even as we spend time with our families and our friends and our coworkers. It's having lunch with somebody that feels alone or saying hi to somebody that looks lonely. It's hard to do these things, especially when situations don't seem fruitful, when we pray for family members that are struggling 
or when we look at habits in our own life that don't reflect Christ, when we've reached out to people and have been rebuffed and rejected, when you serve and you go unthanked. But this passage reminds us that we don't measure fruit by how many people thank us or how impactful it seems. We measure fruit by the fact that God looks at all of our sincere works, although accompanied with weaknesses and imperfections, and he's glad to accept them. That not only will we not be ashamed, but that even our efforts and our heart, done with sincerity, is the means by which God works. That the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And the means that God has elected to proclaim his glory is our weak and imperfect efforts. So as we look back on the year that passed, there may be many things that you look on and you may be disappointed and dissatisfied. But let us look through it with the eyes of the gospel that our sincere efforts are accepted by God. And the same is true as we look ahead to the new year. Hoping for the future, I read in a book one time, is one of the most difficult things if you're in pain or you're struggling because hope itself can become a painful thing. It becomes a reminder of the disappointments. But in Jesus Christ, we can hope for the future. Not that we get everything that we want, not even that everything will work out according to our plan. Oftentimes, I found, they never work out according to my plan, at least. But that Christ will be glorified. And so, I encourage us, let us commend ourselves to the work of the gospel. In the different areas and spheres of our lives, I do not know exactly what everyone has on their plate. But God has a work cut out for all of us. That's Ephesians 2. God prepares good works for us to do. We all have different labors. And together as a body, we can serve one another and our community and our world. What is the ministry that God has put in your life? Who are we called to pray for and serve? And so let us not grow weary in doing good. Because in good time, it will give fruit. Let us not put our hand to the plow and look back, but commit ourselves to the journey ahead. Not because it is easy, but because God is working. Because those who put their trust in him will not be ashamed and we can trust that Christ will be glorified. And even as it says in Matthew 28, that he is with us always to the end of the age. God uses the means of the prayer of the people and the provision of his spirit. We too can hold our head up high because those who trust in the Lord will not be put to shame and we will not shrink back at his appearance. And we too can live for the glory of God every day, day by day. 
We are people who are in Christ, are heirs to the promises of God, co-heirs with Christ. Um, you know, in Easter, we sing a song. Uh, I don't know if we sing it often, but because he lives, right? But I usually have heard it in funerals. And every time, it makes me cry. Because it's true. Because he lives, we can face tomorrow. We are not alone. We can rejoice in hope, even in difficult situations. And so let us confidently face the future, not because of who we are, but because he lives, because we trust in one, and we will not be ashamed, and he will be glorified. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for this morning and this new year. We look to you, Lord, knowing that we have different things, and problems, different requests. But we look to you and trust in you, knowing that you are always working, that you're the one who carried our shame on the cross. And you lead us, Lord. And so we trust in you and we put our hope in you, knowing that we will not be ashamed, longing to live before your eyes and your eyes alone. And we ask, Lord, that you help us in the different things that you've called us to do, the different people that you've talked, called us to minister to. Help us to be faithful in our work because we know that we work heartedly before your eyes alone. And we know, God, help us be confident even in those moments um, when our work doesn't seem to be fruitful, when our efforts seem to have failed, and to trust in you that you're the one that's working, that you take weak and imperfect people like us, and by your grace and your spirit, you accept our works. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.